Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 1st. I'm your reader, Dagna. We'll begin today with the journal's top story of 2022, which is the Laurel, Nebraska murders, which rocked the community. Laurel, Nebraska. Ask small town residents why they live there and a common reply is they don't have to worry about crime and they enjoy the quiet setting. For residents of Laurel, a community of some 1,000 people, that quiet was shattered early on the morning of August 4th when fires broke out in two houses two blocks from one another. Then came the discovery of four bodies, all with gunshot wounds inside the burning homes. Overnight, the community was changed, the sense of security gone. Incidents like this can shake a community, but I want to emphasize that we have an outstanding public safety team on scene here and a number of our partners to keep the community safe, said Nebraska State Patrol Colonel John Bolduck later that day, hours before the arrest of Jason Jones, who is charged with killing all four residents and setting fire to their homes. A shock to the community and all of Siouxland, the quadruple homicide is the journal's top story of 2022. Investigators have yet to publicly comment on a motive for the slains, and nothing has been disclosed in court documents. Jones, 42, of Laurel, is charged with four counts each of first-degree murder and use of a firearm to commit a felony, and two counts of first-degree arson for the shooting deaths of Michelle Eberling, 53, in her home, and Jean Twyford, 86, his wife Janet, 85, and their daughter Dana, 55, in their house. Jones is scheduled to be arraigned on January 23rd in Cedar County District Court. His wife, Carrie Jones, was arrested December 17th and charged with first-degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and being an accessory to a felony. Court documents implicate her in the death of Jean Twyford. She, too, is scheduled to be arraigned on January 23rd. A little after 3 a.m. on August 4th, firefighters responded to a reported explosion at 209 Elm Street, where Eberling lived. Inside, they found her body with two gunshot wounds. I don't really understand it, her daughter Rochelle told the journal. I don't understand who would do this to her, but I've just been telling myself she was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what I'm thinking happened. I'm hoping that we find the answers to why, but I'm preparing myself to not know those answers. As police and firefighters worked the scene at Eberling's home, a second fire was reported at the Twyford home at 503 Elm Street. Firefighters and officers found the bodies of Jean, Janet, and Dana Twyford, all with gunshot wounds. It's believed the Twyfords were killed shortly before Eberling, court documents said. The Twyfords had moved into town from their farm in 2014, and Jean and Janet were dedicated church volunteers who also were committed to veteran causes. Dana worked at a local nursing home where she was known for bringing cheer to the residents. During the Twyford's funeral, the Reverend Matthew Quanbeck spoke of the shock and pain the community was feeling. Losing three family members at once is extremely difficult, but then you have how they died, how they were taken from you, and that makes it all the more difficult to process for you as a family and for us as a community. It's tough to get our heads around it, and probably many of us are still wondering if we're going to wake up from a bad dream, Quanbeck said. 
Jones, who lived across the street from Aberling, was arrested without incident at his home about 24 hours after the fires and airlifted to a Lincoln hospital for treatment of ser serious burns over a large portion of his body. He spent 82 days in the hospital before he was released and transferred to the Nebraska Department of Corrections Reception and Treatment Center in Lincoln, where he is being held without bond and continues to receive medical treatment. Kerry Jones remained free as the investigation continued, but tensions remained high between her and some in the community. In November, Aberling's fiancé and two neighbors obtained protection orders against Jones, who they say threatened to kill them in the weeks after the slayings. At a court hearing two weeks before her arrest, Jones denied their allegations and said law residents were bullying her in an attempt to force her to move out of town. But the judge left the orders in place, telling Jones and her neighbors the best thing that everybody can do is mind their own business. Jones is now jailed at the Antelope County Jail in Neely, Nebraska. According to court documents, Jason Jones left receipts, including one for gas from a Laurel convenience store and another for a six-gallon gas container from a Sioux City hardware store at Aberling's home, and surveillance camera footage showed the convenience store Camera footage from the convenience store showed Jones filling up gas canisters the evening before the fires. Authorities found a Ruger 57 caliber pistol Jones had bought in 2021 at the Twyford's home. Search warrant affidavits filed in the case show that Carrie Jones was seen at Aberling's home shortly after the explosion was reported, and she told police during an interview she had been there early that morning. Authorities who searched the Jones residence seized two knives, four firearms, several boxes of ammunition, iPhones, two Apple Watches, a MacBook, and an iPad. During a second search, authorities sought burned clothing and shoes matching impressions observed at the Twyford home. According to court documents, Carrie Jones had previously told investigators she peeled off Jason Jones' remaining clothing when he returned home. No burned clothing was found during the search, but two pairs of shoes were seized. A judge has sealed Carrie Jones' affidavit for arrest, a document that may contain additional details investigators found that would support her charges. We'll now go through the rest of the top 10 stories for the journal. Tyson Foods in October made the surprise announcement that it would shutter its Dakota Dunes offices, costing Metro Sioux City about 500 white-collar jobs. Employees were able, at their discretion, to move with their jobs to Tyson's World Headquarters in Springdale, Arkansas, and relocation assistance was made available. Those who chose to stay were, put, to stay were eligible for severance packages. The employee relocations were set to begin in early 2023. The move, according to the company, was intended to foster closer collaboration, enhance team member agility, and enable faster decision-making, positioning Tyson to win with his team members, customers, and consumers. The sprawling Dakota Dunes office complex was originally the world headquarters of IBP, which Tyson acquired in October of 2001 for $3.2 billion in cash and stock. The closure of the office did not impact operations at Tyson's Dakota City Beef Plant, which was also part of the IBP deal. Number three, Wells sells to Italian confectioner. Wells Enterprises, a major employer in the Plymouth County seat of Lamar's and an ice cream making institution, was sold to Ferrero, the Italian 
maker of Tic Tac Mints and Nutella Hazelnut Spread. The sale brought to an end more than a century of Wells' family ownership of the company. Retiring CEO Mike Wells, the last member of the family actively involved in the business, said that the Ferrara will leave Wells with a high degree of autonomy, retaining all 2,700 employees in the Mars and the Wells name. For this reason, civic leaders hailed the transaction as a positive development for Lamar's. I couldn't be more honored and more happy for the outcome, Mike Wells said the day the sale was announced. Number four, red wave in Iowa. Though a red wave midterm election did not materialize at a national level in 2022, Northwest Iowa certainly saw a further title shift for Republicans. In fact, there wasn't a single competitive county or state legislative race on November 8th where a Democratic candidate defeated a GOP contender. For Iowa Senate District 1, Woodbury County Supervisor Rocky DeWitt defeated Democratic incumbent Jackie Smith. Representative Steve Hansen, Democrat Sioux City, a state legislator from, with more than 20 years of experience, lost to Republican Bob Henderson in Iowa House District 1. At the county level, Republican James Loomis, an assistant pr prosecutor in the sheriff's office for 19 years, defeated his boss, Patrick P.J. Jennings, a Democrat who was seeking his fifth four-year term in office as sheriff. I uh, know that's wrong as county attorney. And in the Woodbury County Board District 2 race, newcomer Dan Bittinger, a Republican, overcame Woodbury County Democratic Party Chair Jeremy Demkrieger. The lone Democratic win was notched by J.D. Scholten, who ran unopposed in the Iowa House District 11. Number 5. Law Enforcement Center Woes. 2022 marked a year of construction on the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center, but that progress came with challenges and changes. One of the largest cha challenges was the collapse of six precast concrete walls for the interior of the jail, causing damage to two additional walls. All eight need to be replaced. At the beginning of the year, the cost of the jail totaled $58.4 million. Now the cost has risen to $69 million. Another change to their overall project was a need for 18 more staff with a cost of $1.3 million. When the jail project was initially pitched to the community, it was said no additional staff would be needed. It's a big screw-up, Supervisor Jeremy Taylor said regarding the original staffing estimate. And number six, Baumgars becomes second largest farm and ranch retailer. With his purchase in October, a mega deal as they termed it, of 73 Orchland farm and home stores, Sioux City-based Baumgars became the second largest farm and ranch retailer in the United States, behind only Tractor Supply Company. The complex transaction involved Tractor Supply, which had been seeking to acquire rival Orchland for more than a year but had run afoul of federal antitrust laws. The Federal Trade Commission approved the sale of the Orschland's chain and has 166 stores only on condition that Baumgars acquires 73 of them. Another 12 went to Buchheit Enterprises, a farm retailer operating in Missouri and Illinois. Tractor Supply will also sell Orschland's corporate headquarters and distribution center in Moberly, Missouri to Baumgars for about $10 million within 15 months of the deal's closure. 
The transaction brings Baumgars into seven new states, Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio, nearly doubling the retailer's territory to 15 states. Baumgars also added 1,400 workers to his payroll for a total headcount of about 3,300. As recently as 2021, Baumgars celebrated its milestone 100th store opening. The Orsland acquisition pushed the store count up to 180. The seventh top story, opposition to proposed CO2 pipelines. A pair of proposed pipelines that would pump liquid carbon dioxide through several Siouxland counties continue to draw resistance from landowners. Though the companies proposing the pipelines say they have secured more than half the easements needed to survey land parcels that lie in the planned routes, many landowners have refused to sign agreements and have publicly voiced their opposition. They've been joined by several county boards of supervisors that have sent letters opposing the pipelines to the Iowa Utilities Board. And in October, a judge in Woodbury County denied one of the developers, Navigator Heartland Greenway, an injunction ordering a Moville couple to grant access to their land so that company representatives could survey the proposed route through their property. The couple William and Vicki Holsey have denied the company access to their land and are challenging the constitutionality of Iowa's laws giving pipeline companies the right of entry to private land to survey and examine it. The case is scheduled for trial in February. Number 8. Farmland Prices Skyrocket In late August, a plot of rich farmland in Plymouth County sold for $26,250 per acre, which was thought to be a state record. The grand total for the 55 acres of land, located between Remsen and Marcus, Iowa, came out to more than $1.4 million. This record shat was shattered in November when 73 acres of farmland near Sheldon, Iowa, on the Sioux and O'Brien County border, sold for $30,000 per acre. Auctioneer Bruce Brock said a quality farmland usually averages about $20,000 to $22,500 per acre. Farmland in Plymouth, O'Brien, and Sioux counties, which tend to be rich and productive while offering close access to ethanol plants, as well as livestock and poultry operations, is considered to be among the most valuable in Iowa. And number nine, real estate market becomes tight. In April, the Sioux City Metro was in the midst of a home buying frenzy. Multiple offers were being placed on single property and first time buyers were getting beat out by investors offering to purchase as is for cash. By October, the ultra-competitive housing market seemed to be softening ever so slightly, according to Tanya Vakalaska, president of the Northwest Iowa Regional Board of Realtors. Uh, she, who is a broker associate for Keller Williams, Siouxland, and Okaboji, described the inventory of single-family homes as low, but she said the situation was moderately improving. And then our last one, our number 10 top story, was Trail Project Gets Grant Expands. A $7 million state grant will help expedite the development of a network of recreational trails in Metro Sioux City. Governor Kim Reynolds announced the award for the Siouxland Regional Trail System, which calls for 100 miles of continuous trails connecting Sioux City, Lamars, Hinton, Merrill, and Sergeant Bluff. Sioux City is believed to be the largest Iowa city without a trail connection to another Iowa city. And that is it for the, the top 10 stories. 
Our next front page story is GOP lawmakers target lowering property tax. After previously enacting multiple rounds of reductions to state income tax, Iowa Republican lawmakers have a new target for tax cuts in 2023, property taxes. While a specific proposal has not yet surfaced, the overall tone from Republican legislators is clear. They plan to use their majorities in both chambers of the Iowa legislature to pass legislation that will, in their view, help reduce Iowans' property taxes and send that legislation to Republican Governor Kim Reynolds for her approval. Property tax this year will be a top priority, said Jack Whitfer, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes. From our perspective, everything's on the table as far as changes. Property tax rates are set by the local at the local level by cities, counties, and school districts, among other local entities. So any changes made to the state law will impact property tax policy, not rates. Ultimately, that is a huge concern that we've heard from Iowans as we campaign, Ritmer said. Property tax is concerning a lot of people, especially with the assessment increases that have occurred over the last few months. The 2023 session of the Iowa legislature begins January 9th. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds declined to be interviewed for the, um, the legislative preview series. Property taxes are primary drivers of local government budgets and help determine how much is spent on police, libraries, and parks, among other services. That means officials representing cities, counties, and school districts will have a vested interest in the conversation that takes place and legislation that is produced this year at the Iowa Capitol. Lucas Binken, policy public policy specialist for the Iowa State Association of Counties, said county leaders welcomed the conversation about property taxes but urged caution about making changes that simply shift the tax burden from one set of Iowans to another, or that would make it difficult for local leaders to properly fund services that their communities provide. Binken said county leaders understand that many Iowans have become frustrated with property taxes. In a 2019 Iowa poll by the Des Moines Register and Mediacom, 55% of Iowans said property taxes were too high. County officials understand that frustration. They don't run for office to raise taxes on their friends and neighbors. They run for office to provide high-quality services for the communities, to make them a nice place to live, work, and play, as the saying goes. So the reality is, the cost of providing those services doesn't remain the same and doesn't go down. So the discussion is really, how do we use the taxpayer dollars that are entrusted to the local officials to provide those services? Pat Grassley, the Republican House Speaker from New Hartford, said property tax is a difficult tax to address through legislation because of the many different government agencies it funds. Also said one example of a need for reform is that after the state moved the funding of mental health services off of property taxes and to the state's general fund budget, not all local property tax rates were reduced as a result. So I think what you're going to see as looking at this year is more of how do we help bring down some of those levies. But at the same time, how do we make sure that there is a level of accountability so Iowans see this property tax relief, Grassley said. Binkett said he feels any discussion of accountability should expand to the state as well and cited the 2013 reduction in Iowa's business property tax rates. When that legislation passed, lawmakers created a funding stream from the state to local governments to help them offset revenue losses as a result of property tax reductions. But that fund, called a backfill, had a short shelf life. 
In 2021, the Republican majorities passed legislation that phases it out. I think there needs to be some transparency there when the state takes action. What does that do to the taxes at the local level being considered? In general, we would want to avoid legislation or tax law changes that would be just another property tax burden shift. We want to make sure that we're going to call it reform. Let's actually do reform, not just relief for some and shift to others. Binkin said county leaders believe property tax reform can be achieved by diversifying the way local services are funded. For example, he said fees for titles and licenses could be increased in order to make them more self-sufficient and thus less reliant upon property taxes. Without a balanced approach to property tax reform, Binkin warned, local leaders face reduced revenues that would force difficult budget decisions. We don't want to be in a position where county supervisors are deciding. Do we have a couple fewer deputies patrolling the roads or maybe cut the staff of the county attorney so the workload is heavier for that staff? Or is it less snowplow drivers or motor grader operators out on the road? Where do you cut is my point, Binkin said. Counties are already running a very tight operation, so where to cut would be difficult. Jennifer Conference, leader of the minority party House Democrats from Windsor Heights, also called for striking that balance. We need to find that balance between ensuring the property taxes remain affordable, but also that we have public safety, that we have ambulances, we have roads, that our public schools are funded, uh, Conference said. We need to make sure that we're finding the balance between affordability of property taxes and continuing to provide the services that Iowans expect. When they craft the next state budget, which begins July 1st, state legislators will have very little new revenue with which to work. State revenue is projected to increase by the slimmest of margins, just 0.1% for the next budget year, according to the latest estimates from the state's nonpartisan revenue estimating panel. But the $9.63 billion the state expects to take in is still comfortably more than the $8.2 billion allocated for the current state budget year and the state's reserve accounts are flush. The general fund budget has a $1.1 billion surplus. The state's two reserve funds have a combined $895 million, and the taxpayer trust fund has more than $2 billion. However, the state revenue may decrease in future years as those state income tax reductions become phased in. Eventually, the state will have a 3.9% income tax rate for all Iowa workers, which will result in $2 billion in less in state revenue each year. The taxpayer trust is set to be used if state revenue dips because of the income tax cuts. We'll now move to the opinion page and our first part of that is a journal uh, opinion piece with the headline of Iowa Public Schools Need More Support from the State. Looking at the list of top stories for 2022, it becomes clear change is a common denominator. One company sells, another moves, elections sweep one set of candidates out, bring another one in. One area, though, that doesn't require an overhaul or two committees to study it is education in Iowa. For decades, Iowa was a state others looked up to when it came to education. The Iowa test of basic skills was a benchmark for others to measure their progress. Our public schools were the envy of other state leaders. And then something happened. Instead of increasing funding for public schools, politicians started pulling back. Private schools expressed an interest in getting a piece of the action. And soon there was talk that Iowa public schools needed competition to improve. That's political rhetoric. 
It's a way for politicians to scare voters and fund their parochial supporters. Iowa public schools aren't breeding grounds for crime or hideouts for pedophiles. They're just underfunded institutions that have wrongly become targets for those with political agendas. Think back to when you were in school. If you were educated in Iowa, you probably remember those teachers who brought out the best in you and were not looking for excuses. They weren't grooming you for a life of marginalization. They were grooming you for further education, worthwhile careers, and happy lives. Heck, many of those same teachers are probably still teaching today. Because it plays well with voters, politicians want you to believe the system is broken and children will be better off in the hands of teachers who actually do have an agenda. What they don't want to admit is they didn't fund our schools to continue those peak performances. They looked for ways to undercut what was going on until parents started thinking something was wrong. The coronavirus pandemic didn't help. Because schools were not prepared to switch to online learning, parents thought the fault rested in teachers' hands. Some students fell behind, partly due to some homes lacking access to Wi-Fi. Where did the problem lie? In the hands of legislators who didn't adequately expand broadband internet access in the state, after promising to do just that for years. When Iowa lawmakers start tossing vouchers around like political hot potato in 2023, remind yourself of the education you received. The state's public schools are a foundation for much of what's good in Iowa. To turn your back on them because you think it will bring you a few more votes in the next election is a big mistake. They need your support, not your rhetoric. And again, this was an opinion piece from the Sioux City Journal. And we now have a, a couple of letters to the editor. The first one is written by Randy Giles of Sioux City. Tis the season to be jolly, but not for everyone. When I asked a friend of mine how his Christmas was, he answered, Someone decided to light around 50 fireworks in my neighborhood tonight. These trigger my PTSD big time. My dear friend is a veteran who fought in combat. I cannot imagine how terrifying that must have been for him, and certainly not a way to spend the Christmas holiday. There are almost 10,000 veterans in Sioux City. Some veterans may be your neighbors whom you have yet to meet. Regardless, setting off fireworks outside the allowed time is illegal. It is against the law. I am proud to be a Sioux City resident, and I know we can do better. I have not been quiet about my feelings about fireworks. In fact, I campaign to end them entirely. As the new year approaches and fireworks blast in the air, think about how blessed we are to have soldiers fighting for our freedom. Let's show some respect for our veterans, wildlife, and companion animals, all victims to the horror of fireworks. And again, this letter was from Randy Giles of Sioux City. Our next letter is from Jeffrey Penner of Sioux City. And Jeffrey writes, When I was a child, I grew up on 16th and Court Streets. In those days, kids ruled the neighborhoods. Nobody tried to hurt or bother us, and homelessness was not a common sight. Last summer, I thought we had hit our low when I spied not one, but three drunk transients passed out within 100 feet from a gas station in broad daylight, in the mouth of an alley entering the street. This has gotten so bad, I'm more afraid as a grown man walking around in the day than when I was 10 and out way past curfew. Homeless are everywhere, and even police are so sick of dealing with them they don't even bother. At what point do city leaders decide to do something to change the enabled and rewarded homelessness in Sioux City? Again, this letter was from Jeffrey Penner of Sioux City. Diocese of Sioux City to honor Pope Benedict uh, the 16th. 
With the news of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's death on Saturday, December 31st, at the age of 95, the Diocese of Sioux City is taking the time to honor the former pontiff and announces plans to memorialize him. I feel very close to Pope Benedict as he named me as Bishop of the Diocese of Sioux City during his time as Pope, Bishop Ard Walker Nicholas said. He has always served as an inspiration to me in his great intelligence and gentleness. All of us have been enriched by his papacy and his deep love of the church. Please join me in prayer and honoring our former Holy Father. Nicholas was named as the leader of the diocese in Sioux City in October 2005 and had a chance to meet Benedict in the Vatican in March 2012. According to the diocese, area parishes and schools will pray for Benedict, display portraits of the Pope Emeritus, and celebrate a Mass for the Dead on Thursday, January 5th. Following the Mass for the Dead, the Diocese of Sioux City said there will be nine days of mourning from January 6th to January 14th. Over that stretch of time, there will be Masses, prayers of the Liturgy of the Hours, Eucharist adoration, and general prayers. In February 2013, Benedict became the first pope since Pope Gregory XII in July 1415 to step down from the position. Per the Associated Press, his successor, Pope Francis, will celebrate Benedict's funeral mass on Thursday and become the first pope in the modern age to eulogize a retired leader of the Catholic Church. In a New Year's Eve vigil, Francis said of Benedict, only God knew of his sacrifice offered for the good of the church. Benedict, the oldest pope elected in 275 years and the first German to serve in almost 1,000 years, succeeded John Paul II in April 2005. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 1st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to today's obituaries. Scott James Cook, 63, of Daphne, Alabama, and formerly of Sioux City, slipped away quietly on Monday, December 26. There will be a celebration of life in Daphne, Alabama at a later date. Scott was born on August 22, 1959, in Waukini, Kansas, the youngest child born to Richard Cook and Beverly Cook. He attended North High School in Sioux City, where he was an active member of the high school cheer squad. Scott went on to attend the University of South Dakota and graduated with a degree in Earth Sciences. Scott worked in the environmental disposal business as a quality control supervisor, where he was respected by his customers and peers for his honesty, kindness, and dedication. Donna Van Ward Wendell, 86, of Sioux City, passed away Tuesday, December 22nd, at a local hospital. Services will be held at 1 p.m. on Tuesday at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Donna was born on December 23, 1936, in Sioux City, to Donna Lee, Donald Lee and Leona May Stewart. She attended Leeds High School and then began her career as a supervisor at Zenith. She then worked as an office manager for Dr. McAllister Dentistry, retiring in May of 1997. She was united in marriage to LaVille Joseph Van Wart in November of 1953. To this union they had four children. She later married Walter Wendell and welcomed his three children into her family. 
Donna loved her family and spending time with her children and grandchildren. She was a people person, whether it was sitting outside with her neighbors or having sister day with her sister. Rhonda R. Ruschling, Sioux City, 58, died Sunday, December 25th. Services will be January 7th at 10.30 a.m. at First Presbyterian Church in Sioux City. Burial will be at Arlington Cemetery in Mobile. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service at the church. Arrangements with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Thomas R. Tom Tainter of Sergeant Bluff, 67, died Monday, December 26. Services will be January 6 at 6 p.m. at the Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church. Visitation will be January 6 from 4 to 6 p.m. at the church. Arrangements with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sergeant Bluff. Helen Backroad Erickson of Sioux City passed away peacefully on Monday, December 26. Per her request, a celebration of her life will be held at a later date. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is assisting with arrangements. Born on December 25, 1921, Helen was lovingly welcomed into the Cottage Grove home of Lewis and Loretta Backroad in Des Moines. Life with her six siblings was never dull. They grew up knowing the best of their parents' German and Irish ancestry, work hard, and have fun. She graduated from St. Joseph's Academy in Des Moines in 1939 and went on to St. Vincent's School of Nursing in Sioux City, graduating in 1942. While a nursing student, she met her future husband, Ernest Daniel Erickson. They were married in Iowa City on December 19, 1942. They lived in San Antonio, Iowa City, Denver, Arkansas City, and Stuttgart, Germany. They settled in Sioux City in 1954 where they raised their family. Helen was widowed at an early age and raised her children as a single parent when that was not the norm. She worked at the Siouxland Community Blood Bank for 25 years. If she didn't know you by name, she knew you by your blood type. A long-standing member of the Blessed Sacrament Church, she lived her faith by volunteering through many Siouxland organizations. Her church, Sioux Med Dames, Mercy Medical Center, the Briarcliff College Library, the Red Cross, and the Soup Kitchen. She was a good friend to many and always extended her holiday table to friends and family who were alone. She was an avid reader and enjoyed bingo, bridge, card games, and puzzles. She had a fondness for chocolates, shoes, sunsets, and an occasional martini. She was a bright, independent, resilient, and enjoyed a keen sense of humor. Helen played a significant role in her family's lives. As 100 favorite family memories were shared at her 100th birthday, three themes prevailed, travel, games, and caring for family pets. Also answering to mom, M-I-L, mother-in-law, G-Ma, grandma, G-G-Ma, and Grammy, she will be greatly missed by her family. Memorials can be made in her honor to the Sioux City Public Library and the Food Bank of Siouxland and mailed to the family of Helen Erickson, 910 Lowry Avenue, Sanborn, Iowa, 51248. Ina Lee Warren of Owatonna, Minnesota, formerly of, of Sioux City, passed away at age 83 on Sunday, December 25th, at the Homestead Hospice House of Owatonna after fighting an extended battle with NAFLD. Ina shall be laid to rest at Memorial Park Cemetery in Sioux City. A celebration of her life will be held at a later date. Ina was born on August 2, 1939 to Vern Martin and Rose Martin in Sioux City. Ina graduated from Central High School, aka the Castle on the Hill, of Sioux City in 1958. 
1960, Ina married Richard Plasek, and together they had three children. She subsequently remarried to Robert Warren in 1970, and they had one daughter together. Ina worked various jobs throughout her life that included work at Verstegen Printing Company of Sioux City in the role of deputy clerk for Woodbury County and later as a child protective worker, as well as providing daycare services for boys and girls home and family services. Her work with families and children at boys and girls home was something she truly loved doing. She was an excellent mother and loved working with families and especially children to improve their lives. In 2001, Ina retired and moved to Medford, Minnesota to be closer to her daughters, son Martin, and her grandchildren. Next to her family, Ina's next greatest love was children and her animals. The family requests that in lieu of flowers, please donate to your favorite animal, animal rescue or children's charity. John Edward J.B. Brenner, 78, of Whiting, passed on Saturday, December 24th at his residence. Celebration of life service will be at 1.30 p.m. on Saturday at the Gosta Funeral Home Chapel in Onawa with Father Michael Erpelding officiating. A private family burial with military honors will be held at a later date. Arrangements are under the direction of the Gosta Funeral Home and Monuments, Onawa. John was born on January 19, 1944 to Myron Ulrich Brenner and Adele Friday Brenner in Sioux City. His parents and younger brother Ron lived on a farm in Mapleton, Iowa. He graduated from Maple Valley High School in 1962 and attended Creighton University before joining the Army National Guard. John met the love of his life, Margaret, in the mid-60s after she moved from her home in Corner Brook, Newfoundland to eventually settle in Sioux City. On April 8, 1967, they were married at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Mapleton. To this union, two daughters were born. The first, Leslie, was born while John was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado. After his honorable discharge, the couple returned to Iowa, where they made their home in Whiting, and had their second daughter, Janine. John worked for the Army Corps of Engineers for 35 years until his retirement in 1995. In his younger years, when not working for the Corps, he did some farm work on the side. He was a member of the Whiting Fire Department for many years and a member of the Emory Johnson American Legion Post 481 of Whiting. At home, he enjoyed taking Margaret and his girls fishing, playing catch in the yard, and going to ball games and making homebrew with his friends. In 1988, the couple moved from town to the country where he was happiest. He loved being on his acreage and working, watching sports, are playing cards in his barn. After his retirement, he drove the activity bus for the Whiting School, drove semis for local farmers, drove from Nutrient, and drove his little dove around to her Avon meetings. He loved spending time with his grandkids and enjoyed telling them stories, some of them even true. He loved when the boys from Nutrient would call and ask him to come in to help tell them stories. He spent many hours helping his daughters, son-in-laws, and grandkids with projects. Whether it was something as small as a Pinewood Derby car or as big as Pergola, he had the ability to make it happen. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation in John's name to the Whiting Fire and Rescue or to Emory Johnson American Legion 481 of Whiting. Tammy Annette Craig, 55, of Sioux City, passed away on Friday, December 23rd at a local hospital. Services will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Tammy was born on July 12, 1967 in Sioux City to Daryl and Vida Kanka. She attended Sioux City schools and was a Sioux City resident for most of her life, but did spend time in both California and Minnesota. She was a member of Sacred Heart Catholic Church, 
In her spare time, she loved playing her games on her computer or phone. She also loved spending time outside tinkering in the garage with her father, Daryl. More than anything, Tammy loved her grandchildren with her whole heart. James D. Starr Rask, Esterville, Iowa, formerly of Sioux City, 65, died Tuesday, December 20th. Services will be January 3rd at 1 a 11 a.m. at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Barbara Ellen Harbeck, 90, of Sioux City, passed away Thursday, December 15, from natural causes. Celebration of life will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday at Whitefield United Methodist Church in Sioux City. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is handling the arrangements. Barb was born Barbara Ellen Robertson on July 17, 1932 to Charlie and Mamie Robertson in Sioux City, a town she loved because her friends and family were here, so she never left. We, uh, she loved to walk the Sioux River Trail from Riverside Park until her feet betrayed her. She had an increasingly severe dementia and her body outlived her mind. She lives on in her sayings, Godfrey, Jeremy, Gemini Christmas, Criminatilis, I'll be darned, okie dokie, tough darts, Ralph, hunky dory, which all of her children still say really often, no matter how hard they try not to. She was a mom to be proud of, a class act, and will be missed by all who were fortunate enough to know her. We look forward to seeing her again. The family requests snow flowers. Debbie Druckmann Lamars, 70, died Thursday, December 29th. Services will be January 4th at 10.30 a.m. at All Saints Catholic Parish, St. Joseph Church in Lamars. Burial will be following services at Calvary Cemetery in Lamars. Visitation will be January 3rd from 4 to 7 p.m. at the church and resumes January 4th from 9.30 until service time. Arrangements with Rex Winkle Funeral Home in Lamars. Roger Rain King, Kingsley, Iowa, 83, died Saturday, December 31st. Arrangements pending with the Road Funeral Home in Kingsley. James Kenneth Jim Keene, 77, from Phoenix and formerly from Sioux City, passed away peacefully on Wednesday, December 28th in Phoenix after seven years with dementia. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is assisting with arrangements. Visitation will be held on Friday at Holy Cross Blessed Sacrament Church with family present beginning at 4 p.m. Prayer vigil service will begin at 7 p.m. The funeral mass will be held at 10 a.m. on Saturday at the Holy Cross Blessed Sacrament Church. Following urn burial at Calvary Cemetery, the family will be hosting a reception at the Marriott Riverfront Hotel in South Sioux City. Jim's greatest joys came from spending quality time with his family, playing cards and board games, watching sports and funny movies, and making us all laugh. His humor and witty jokes brought smiles to so many loved ones and even strangers. As we celebrate Jim's life, we do so with a smile on our face and fond memory of his love for all. Richard J. Dick McKeever, Sioux City, 84, died Friday, December 30th. Services will be January 5th at 11 a.m. Faith United Presbyterian Church in Sioux City. Visitation January 5th from 9 to 11 a.m. at the church. Bradley D. Holtquist, South Sioux City, 56, died Saturday, December 24th. Services pending with Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. 
Vios G. Janatos, Sioux City 83, died Tuesday, December 27th. Services will be January 3rd at 10 a.m. at the Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. Burial following services at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the church. Arrangements with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Charlie M. Thorpe. Sloan, Iowa, 69, died Wednesday, December 28th. Services will be January 5th at 11 a.m. at the Community Church of Christ in Sloan. Visitation will be January 5th from 9 to 11 a.m. at the church. Arrangements with Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments, Ottawa. Live stream of service available at the Funeral Homes website. LaVon N. Stieg, 76, of South Sioux City, passed away on Thursday, December 29th at her residence. Services will be at 1 p.m. on Tuesday at Morin Becker Funeral Home with Father David Lewer officiating. Burial will be at a later date in rural Decatur, Nebraska. Visitation with the family present will be one hour prior to services on Tuesday at the funeral home. LaVon was born on March 26, 1946 in Minnesota to Dudley and Norma Mulder. She received her education at the Hopkins School in Sioux City along with classes at Western Iowa Technical College. Throughout her life, she was constantly a Siouxlander, living in North Sioux City, Morningside of Sioux City, and finally in South Sioux City from 2003. LaVon was a custom decorator coordinator for J.C. Penney for many years until her retirement. Carolyn S. Mishner, Storm Lake, age 85, died Thursday, December 29th at the Methodist Manor. Gravesite services will be held at a later date in Western Township Cemetery in Climbing Hill. The Fratsky Jensen Funeral Home in Storm Lake is in charge of arrangements. Carolyn was born July 11, 1937 in Alta, Iowa to Carl and Signe Bernstein. She was baptized and confirmed at Trinity Lutheran Church. Growing up, she attended school in Aurelia and graduated from Aurelia High School. Then she went on to attend a Buena Vista College in Storm Lake, Iowa to get her teaching certificate. She was an avid Iowa Hawkeye sports fan, especially football. Ron and Carolyn loved to travel and they enjoyed their condo in Las Vegas and watching the PRCA National Finals Rodeo every year. She also loved cats, gardening, and reading. Marlis, no, Marylis Marjane Vanderhall, Ottawa, Iowa, 88, died Thursday, December 22nd. Services will be January 9th at 11 a.m. Ottawa United Methodist Church in Ottawa. Burial will be January 9th at 3 p.m. East Lawn Cemetery, Sheldon. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the church. Arranged with the Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments of Ottawa. Dolores Darlene Jacobson, born and raised in Sioux City, passed away peacefully at her residence in Tacoma, Washington on Friday, December 23rd at the age of 92. She will always hold a special place in our hearts. She loved her eight daughters, 20 grandchildren, and 18 great-grandchildren that she enjoyed, which she was very proud of. She enjoyed playing skip-bowl, 313, and bingo with her family and friends. She took great pleasure working for the Senior Companion Program for 21 years. Her passion was to help others. If you would like to honor her, donations can be made to the Foster Grandparents and Senior Companion Program of Greater Siouxland of Rock Valley, Iowa. Karen L. Nissen, 69, of Sioux City, passed away, surrounded by her family, on Wednesday, December 28th. Service will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday at St. Thomas Episcopal Church. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. 
Karen was born on August 18, 1953 in Esterville, Iowa to Kelton and Mary Houts. After high school, she traveled and had three children, Amy, Stacy, and Barton. She then settled down in Sioux City and began working at John's Cafe for 17 years. She later worked as a grill clerk cook at Mercy Hospital for many years before retiring. She was a member of Eastern Star and Daughters of the Nile. Wanda J. Mammon, Lamars, Iowa, 78, died Thursday, December 29th. Arrangements are pending with the Maurer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. Cheryl D. Butler Jacobson, 73, of Ottawa, formerly of Cherokee and originally of Sioux City, passed away on Monday, December 26th at Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday at Boothby Funeral Home in Cherokee. Father Daniel Rupp will officiate. Burial will be in the Memorial Park Cemetery at Sioux City. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. on Thursday with the family present from 5 to 7 at the Boothby Funeral Home in Cherokee. Eileen K. McCormick, 63, of Sioux City, passed away on Tuesday, December 27th, at her home, comforted by family. Celebration of Life Service will be at 7 p.m. on Tuesday at Country Celebrations at 5606 Hamilton Boulevard in Sioux City, with refreshments and fellowships beginning at 5 p.m. Tuesday evening. Graveside services will be held in the spring. Arrangements are with the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Daniel Joseph Shoup, 77, passed away Tuesday, December 27th in Sioux City. Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 11 a.m. on Wednesday at Immaculate Conception Church, uh, Catholic Church, Modern Day Parish. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service at the church. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Arrangements are with the Christy Smith Funeral Homes Morningside Chapel. Lawrence Rowan Horst, 84, of Sioux City, passed away on Sunday, December 25th, at his residence. Private services will be held. Burial will be at the Memorial Park Cemetery. Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel is assisting with arrangements. Lawrence, the son of Lawrence and Johanna Rowanhorst, was born December 8, 1938, in Orange City. He grew up on a farm near Orange City and attended Newkirk School. After high school, Lawrence started working at Swift Packing Company in Sioux City. Lawrence was united in marriage to Elaine Thorson on September 22, 1959 in Sioux Falls, and this union was blessed with two children. The family made their home in Sioux City, and Lawrence worked as a police officer for the city of Sioux City for 22 years until his retirement. Throughout the years, some of Lawrence's hobbies included fishing, boating, collecting antique toy tractors, and mowing his yard. He truly enjoyed and looked forward to having coffee with his dear friends Ron Schultz and Jim Nixon. Lawrence was a member of Calvary Lutheran Church in Sioux City. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be directed to Calvary Lutheran Church, 4400 Central Street, Sioux City, Iowa, 51108. Shirley May Ward passed away at her home in Seattle on Sunday, December 11th at the age of 87. Born in Orange City, Shirley was an independent, outgoing personality who traveled the world. Shirley is survived by her daughter, Denise, son Donald, son da David, and grandchildren. In lieu of flowers, please make any donations to the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And that uh, concludes the obituaries for today. We'll now move to Dear Abby, who has a letter to her readers. It goes, Dear readers, 
Welcome to 2023. A new year has arrived and the last one is behind us. As always, this new year brings with it our hopes for a new beginning. Today presents an opportunity to discard destructive old habits for healthy new ones. And with that in mind, I share the often requested list of New Year's resolutions, which were adapted by my late mother, Pauline Phillips, from the original Credo of Al-Anon. Just for today, I will live through this day only. I will not brood about yesterday or obsess about tomorrow. I will not set far-reaching goals or try to overcome all of my problems at once. I know that I can do something for 24 hours that would overwhelm me if I had to keep it up for a lifetime. Just for today, I will decide to be happy. I will not dwell on thoughts that depress me. If my mind fills with clouds, I will chase them away and fill it with sunshine. Just for today, I will accept what is. I will face reality. I will correct those things that I can correct and accept those I cannot. Just for today, I will improve my mind. I will read something that requires effort, thought, and concentration. I will not be a mental loafer. Just for today, I will make a conscious effort to be agreeable. I will be kind and courteous to those who cross my path, and I will not speak ill of others. I will improve my appearance, speak softly, and not interrupt when someone else is talking. Just for today, I will refrain from improving anybody but myself. Just for today, I will do something positive to improve my health. If I'm a smoker, I'll quit, and I will get off the couch and take a brisk walk, even if it's only around the block. Just for today, I will gather the courage to do what is right and take responsibility for my own actions. And now, dear readers, allow me to share an item that was sent to me by L.J. Bhatia, a reader from New Delhi, India. And this is, this year, no resolutions, only some guidelines. The Holy Vedas says, man has subjected himself to thousands of self-inflicted bondages. Wisdom comes to a man who lives according to the true eternal laws of nature. The prayer of St. Francis, of which there are several versions, contains a powerful message. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And so, dear readers, may 2023 bring it with it good health, peace, and joy to all of us. Love, Abby. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 1st. I'm your reader, Dagna. And you can access a recording for, of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening, and Happy New Year!
Okay, I'll be right there, guys. Hey. Oh, Deb, come on in. I thought you were the radon test guys. The who test guys? Didn't you see the paper Sunday? The Surgeon General issued another warning. Oh, like the cigarette warning? Exactly. Only now they're saying radon causes lung cancer. For non-smokers like us, radon is the number one cause of lung cancer. You're kidding me, right? I have a smoke-free home and my family can still get cancer from radon? Yep. That's why the Surgeon General says every home should be tested for radon. But I don't smell any radon in my house. No, nobody can smell radon. It's odorless, colorless, and tasteless. It just comes up from underground and seeps into your house. Oh, great. No, no, hey, it's no big deal. Even if they find high levels of radon, it can easily be fixed. My brother just had his house fixed. Now that's the radon test, guys. So how did you find them? First, you go to the EPA website. Learn more. Visit the EPA at epa.gov radon. That's epa.gov radon. Mommy, I'll get it. Oh, I'll be right there. Me too.